0: Welcome to the Actually Autistic Podcast, and today my guest is Dr. Wen Lawson. Hello, Dr. Wen. Say hi to everybody, please.
1: Hi. Hello, everybody. Hi.
0: And uh, Dr. Wen, you are all the way in Australia. I'm all the way in Portland, Oregon. And the time zone is crazy. It's like 13 hours and an extra day or something. So you are significantly farther in the future than I am. Yeah,
1: and that's that's even without a time travel machine.
0: Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So how <laughs> how is Sunday over there so far? Pretty good?
1: It's pretty good. Twenty five degrees, a little bit windy. I hope the door won't make too much noise banging.
0: Oh well we'll know what that is then if we hear some, some yeah. banging around. That's that's good. That's good. Mm. So Doctor Wen has a PhD in psychology. And a practice where you do lots of conferences and consultations, and you've written 16 books?
1: Uh, More like 20 plus.
0: 20 plus? (laughs) Your website is behind. (laughs) It, it,
1: It possibly is, yeah.
0: And you wrote the first one about autism in 1998? Yeah, yeah. That was... In a way, sort of pre-autism awareness, and I think I had maybe heard the word autism, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times Uh by then. How did you develop such an early awareness of it?
1: I read a book by a lass called Donna Williams. Mm -hmm. She'd written that in 1992 and then another one in 1996. And I recognized my own story in in her words, even though we're very different people. Right. I got my diagnosis of autism in 93. Been writing since I was quite small, oh. but writing on, on anything, on bits of paper, um, <laughs> napkins. And I'd had quite a collection of poetry I've been writing over many years. So it was a case of putting that together in a story about, my discovery of who I am, and as in an autistic person, and I managed to get that published, which was amazing.
0: And that's called A Life Behind Glass, right?
1: Yep, Life Behind Glass,
0: yeah. So, how old were you when you got your autism diagnosis?
1: My autism diagnosis I didn't get till I was 42.
0: So, you were 42 and you had become sort of autism curious for Uh, about a year or two before that? So (laughs) you were like in your early 40s when you... I was
1: hmm, probably 41, getting the diagnosis, 42 by the time I got the report.
0: It took a whole year to get the report?
1: It it took six months, so... Whoa! Okay, technically 41 and a half. (laughs) 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 Yeah.
0: Wow, that must have been a really long six months. I'll bet it felt like a year. That's why you remember it being a year. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah, so, yeah. when you got that information, so first you got the information, and then did you go through the process of am I, am I not? What's going on? Am I imagining this? Is this really me? Is this not me? Or did you look at it and go, oh my gosh, this is me? What was that like for you?
1: Yeah, very mixed. Because as a two year old, I had a diagnosis of intellectual disability, and then at 17, uh, of schizophrenia. And they were both misdiagnosed, they weren't oh accurate. My gosh. But a lot of years in and out of mental health institutions, on a lot of medication, not doing well at school, I'm dyslexic. So lots of queries over a number of things, and I've grown up believing that I was less than and not normal. And different. It was very hard to have any kind of trust or belief in yourself or in even what other people are saying. So it was a very mixed bag.
0: Oof! And to live with that until you're in your forties. Gracious. Yes. yes. So you have a son? Yes.
1: I have. I had three sons and a daughter. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Two of my sons also are on the autistic spectrum. The oldest one and the youngest boy. Uh-huh. The middle lad was ADHD, but he got killed when he was 19.
0: Oh, I'm so That's, sorry. Um,
1: yeah, 19 years ago now.
0: Oh, gosh. So when you found out, were your children, were they, I mean, they. some of them must have been born. We don't start having tons of children at the age of 40 usually. So.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I married at 20. My first son was born when I was, uh, 22. The last one when I was 30. And my, they're grown up now. The oldest boy is, uh, I don't, I don't, let me get this wrong. I think he's, (laughs) I think he's 45 and my daughter is 43 and the youngest boy is 36. Goodness.
0: 37. 37. So we're, how was it for you to be a mother of growing children? Um Okay, let's just take a moment here. I really want to address your work in the way that you want it to be addressed. Uh-huh. I want to talk about the trans stuff. If you want to talk about the trans mm-hmm. stuff, I want to sure. be respectful yeah. about it. And I want to use better language. I want to say parent instead of <laughs> gendering your parenthood, because I don't think that's helpful uh... in this situation.
1: Yeah, it's actually not, not, it's actually okay for me because I'm still mum.
0: I'm oh. still mum to my
1: kids and I'm just, I'm just a man mum. So. Okay. For me, I'm not their father. They have a father. They didn't want another one. <laughs> Got it. Um, so currently, uh, I'm. Happily called mum to my kids. We get some funny looks sometimes (laughs) in the taxi, for example. (laughs) But, um, uh, you know, it's, it's fine. I'm, I'm still not a hundred percent okay with that because I think some of that okay, not being okayness might be a social construct of what mother is. Right. As in a female role. So I'm very much a male but I'm still mom to my kids.
0: Well, that just sounds wonderful and totally embracing the paradox that we all are because we're all these multidimensional beings. So that's wonderful. Okay, so how old were your kids when you had finally pretty much accepted that you are autistic?
1: When I finally accepted that I am on the autism spectrum, that I am autistic, my youngest was 12. Mm. And the older boy, oh dear, something like 17 or 18, I think.
0: Wow, that's an intense age. (laughs) That's amazing. How do you feel like it changed your parenting at all?
1: don't think it changed my parenting because my boys being on the spectrum themselves, there was always an innate kind of acceptance and understanding between us as a family. So I knew from quite a young age, really, when they were quite young, change was difficult things had to be structured planned had to speak in quite plain language and try to make things really clear and if there was going to be something that changed that i explain it Mm -hmm. having said that part of the uh secondary challenge if you like was something called pda technically that's pathological demand avoidance which i don't like the word pathological that just means almost an innate resistance to demand and my my kids had that about them too so trying to phrase things in language that remove demand to decrease anxiety was part of the way we lived and that was established when they were quite young so it didn't really have to change the only things that needed changing were trying to build acceptance amongst the wider family and a wider community like school for example
0: right and school is a challenge i feel like school for our kids is a challenge no matter what and yeah. it becomes yeah. even more complicated when you know we're trying to get accommodations for basic things like hey my kid can't handle fluorescent lights you know can we put them by the yeah. window and and It it really depends on the teacher of that child. I, I was really shocked at the hardest part of parenting was getting my kids in a good classroom with a good teacher. I mean, that, yeah. it just took all my energy. And then it would seem like, oh, right. you know, you'd get them into a class. And then here was the end of the year already. You had to start the whole process all over again. Yes. And, and I, so. I can't imagine with that many kids, yeah. I I, yeah. I would have been exhausted all the time. I'm very, very impressed. So <laughs> then <laughs> your kids, when your kids grew up and they've all moved out of the house at this point, did you suddenly find yourself with oceans of time where <laughs> no <laughs> that's not how no, it worked I'm, darn it
1: <laughs> i'm one of those people that um i also have adhd the tired of uh a diagnosed situation so that means i'm quite hyperactive i have a lot of attention <laughs> issues and i move between things quite rapidly so uh lots of fingers and lots of pies which is a strange metaphor because there aren't any fingers in pies. It just means doing <laughs> lots of things simultaneously. Yes. So writing, lecturing, reading, watching videos, making videos, working with lots of people in, in a variety of ways. I'm better off like
0: that. But you have more time to do those other things now than you did before, yes? Or, in or theory. Do, really? <laughs> in theory, I overcommit.
1: I, I uh, take on too much and it's really no. hard to say I see. no.
0: I understand. And I
1: love, absolutely love what I do. So it gives me life. It doesn't take my life away. Yeah, I gain life through activity.
0: I totally understand that. You're talking to a person who had a Shakespeare company, and I did five productions in one year. I did all the ah, producing, wow. I did all the directing, I did all the promotions, I designed wow. the sets and the costumes and the lights and the props, and then after I did five of those productions, wondered why I was tired.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, So yes.
0: I understand that. Mm. It, you want to be busy. Yeah. It helps to have the mind engaged and... If you have intrusive thoughts at all, which I certainly do, being busy and having your focus engaged in something, I feel like is one of the most therapeutic things that we can possibly do. Don't you? Do you feel that way? Does it work that way? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's very wise, and also kind of learning how to be mindful or focus in on the moment, give myself a little bit of distance between a thought that might. The mm-hmm. setting it, setting out to rob me of life. If I can say, "Oh, I'm having one of those thoughts. That's interesting." Then I put myself at a bit of distance from that thought, and it doesn't have such control over me, which is very good.
0: Yeah, that's a really nice habit to be able to do. So I don't
1: fight them. I don't mm-hmm. fight it. I just say,
0: okay. <laughs> it's a that's a very yeah. Buddhist practice for sure, and yeah. I feel yeah, like is. one that gets. That really does get easier the more that you do it. Practice is really an apt yes. phrase. It's like a muscle. Yeah. It definitely gets stronger, I feel like.
1: Absolutely.
0: So yeah. you then began living as an autistic, and then at some point you decided to transition to become a man. And That's right. How yeah. old were yeah. you when you made that choice to actually I, – I imagine you'd been thinking about it f- probably forever, I'm guessing, contemplating, yeah, interesting. trying to understand um, that part of yourself. But
1: yeah. trying to understand lots of parts of myself without connecting those parts. So an awareness that I didn't like anyone touching my breast. I mean, not that I would let anybody, but my wife, or who is now my wife, my partner. Lots of things about fragrance from my body that I wasn't very good at not coping with wearing dresses that would flap against the back of my legs. There were so many things that I Mm -hmm. put down to sensory stuff as an autistic person because I have a lot of sensory issues. Right. I wasn't recognizing or separating what was sensory, what was gender dysphoria or discomfort. Oh,
0: my God So it's taken a
1: very, very long time. I I was always tomboyish, but then – Okay, so I'm more of a butch type of woman. I thought.
0: Right.
1: It took a long time. I was sixty-one years old before (gasps) the light went on, and I realized. Oh my gosh! I'm actually a man, and it was um, it was an amazing moment, and it was incredibly scary, because I'm the kind of person once something clicks, I can't leave it alone. I have to act on it. So that meant telling my partner, and we'd been in a seemingly lesbian relationship for 30-odd years. Wow. My husband and I separated when, oh, the youngest was about 17. Mm-hmm. So long time ago, I had no no way of knowing whether she was going to stay. And she's absolutely the love of my life, so it was really hard. And it was really turbulent and an incredibly difficult time. I mean, there were lots of tears and lots of anger, and she said, you've lived all this time, why now? You've managed so far, why now? And then I said to her, because now is the moment. I haven't connected before now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she said, I will travel this journey with you. I cannot guarantee how it will make me feel. Mm-hmm. But the very fact that she was going to be like in the boat with me was amazing. And uh, yeah, we, we, that was nearly five years ago now
0: yeah that is quite the test of a relationship, oh, oh my gosh, yeah. Wow, so then you went through this process and now you present as a man and yeah, is yeah. is that wonderful now? Does that feel
1: oh I, it's really freeing? you know you don't know your home until you're home,
0: yeah,
1: you don't know you're there until you arrive and There were all sorts of fears about that journey, but an absolute total belief that it was the right journey for me. Mm -hmm. And then as we went through each process of starting hormones and surgeries to remove breasts and all those female parts of myself and to have lower surgeries, to have male genitalia constructed, everything, each step, I, I never once... Looked back. I never once missed any aspect of what being a woman was. It was really more than, more than confirming. It, it was how I got joined up. I'd never been joined up before, as in there were parts of me that were all scattered. But, but once that Mm -hmm. light went on and I pursued that decision, those parts came together and that seeming jigsaw puzzle that the pieces, pieces were missing, they were found and put together and that picture became whole. I've not ever had one moment of regret
0: that is just beautiful and the imagery is really gorgeous and i feel like when when we're dissociating because we can't integrate for whatever reason Mm. when we're dissociating it takes so much energy to maintain those walls of separation between those parts that we're trying to keep separate and when we can integrate those parts of ourselves There's this tremendous rush of energy and creativity. So, did you pump out at at that point? Did you write thirty books in like six months or something? (laughs) (laughs) Is that when you wrote all those books?
1: (laughs) We wrote. My wife and I wrote a book together. I'd not ever written with her before.
0: Oh. Um,
1: But we've written a book called Oh dear, what's it called? Um, um, transitioning together: Mm -hmm. one couple's journey. Of gender and identity discovery, and that uh, that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because it was honesty from both of us, which included a revelation we we'd had no idea that we were actually quite codependent and we didn't recognise it.
0: Oh, whoopsie! <laughs> so, so,
1: yeah, yeah, that was a, that was quite interesting because it meant becoming my own person in a way I'd never done before was really quite a threat to her because her person, her depended a lot on who. I was not who we were to, as a couple, and we weren't a lesbian couple. In fact, I'm a, I'm, I'm a heterosexual male, and I I I hadn't known that. So lots of things in the book. It's a love story for sure. Yes. But it's very challenging. It was very challenging to write. Very challenging to read. Yeah, as well as writing for other things, but that was the major yes. major focus.
0: Well, I love my spouse dearly, but anytime we have to do a project together, it's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Even without all of that extra incredible emotional weight of writing something so deeply personal and and making yourself so vulnerable, wow. So you must really love each other. That's all I can say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I I think you two are are probably one of the most romantic couples in the whole world. Is my feeling about it.
1: Oh, <laughs> Uh, she's the best. She's totally amazing. And she's autistic as well.
0: Oh, how and, wonderful. Uh, as well as oh. uh,
1: having her own kind of issues. So she's quite a lady. I mean, she really is amazing.
0: I do find that often us autistics kind of clump together sometimes. <laughs> it's It just yeah. seems easier. I think that most of my biological family is probably autistic. I don't think all of them are, but I think a pretty large portion of them. Enough of them that when I was growing up, I didn't think I needed to mask. I just figured this was all normal. This was kind of the way it was. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that I found you was that I was looking through YouTube videos madly. I just self-DX'd last November, which was just a few months ago. So of course, the first thing I did, it was dive into the research because I love research. And I did a deep dive into YouTube and found your video where you were talking about autism and aging. Yeah. Exactly. There is nothing else out there. <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> so I so excited yeah. to find that one tiny little video of you talking about this. And I really want to encourage my listeners to go find it. All you need to do is Google Doctor Wen autism, aging. It will be the first and only video that pops up with that subject matter. So it's really difficult not to find it. But what I'd like to talk about is how do you feel that autism in terms of aging, how does that affect us? I know that's a huge question, but I think something that I've noticed in myself is that I don't have as much energy as I did in my 20s. And that's just. That's the way it is. We understand that as we age, we don't get as much energy. But what that means is that I have less energy to deal with sensory issues. Is that mm. kind of a common yeah. problem?
1: I think it is because when you're younger, at least as kids, you know, you go to school, you're a lot more socially involved because of being a child and expected to join groups and go places. When you get older, you actually can make a choice to avoid where there's lots of people so in some respects our senses live a calmer life but they are jolted more suddenly by that need when we're out in the Mm -hmm. world I think so there's more I think our senses suffer more as we get older however having said that I think cognitively we do better Mm -hmm. than non-autistic people because there is some research to show autistic. Children as babies, we seem to be born with more plasticity, more brain plasticity. Or oh, we're almost like there's over connections to things. We're a bit okay. That whole process of cognitive decline appears to be slower in autism. So that's exciting, and maybe we're even protected against things like Alzheimer's. You won't see a lot of Alzheimer's in the autistic population. So that's that's exciting interesting. Too. So although I'm very sure. forgetful. I'm a very forgetful person always have been That's part of that adhd stuff having said that i tend not to forget life factual material that's still quite useful to me so i might forget where the keys right. are i might put the milk in the microwave when i meant to put it in the fridge <laughs> don't quote me on that one but i have been known to do that but in general my memory is seems to be less declining than the non- in general, the non-autistic mm-hmm. population as, as an age, mm-hmm. factor of aging. So those things are, that's good news. That's good news. It also means that as you age, we're more likely to recognize faces than we have done as younger people. Oh, thank goodness. We're more likely <laughs> to, yeah, just, just more likely to build connection. Now I'm still not very good with faces and I'm not no. good with names. And that's just something I accept, but it seems to be less difficult. Than it once was and that's the gain of interest
0: yeah that's fascinating yeah i yeah,
1: yeah. you know
0: i didn't know that uh, there was a thing called face blindness or prosopagnosia i just knew that i that i couldn't yeah, watch yeah, movies yeah. and keep track of the plot and that all of my husband's co-workers who all wear the same clothes and the same haircut and the same baseball cap that i couldn't tell them apart at all and I, <laughs> just say just smile yeah. and say hi real big whenever I saw them because I did they're all you know, Joe, Bob, Jim, I don't know. It's terrible. Yeah, it's, and I feel so bad. I feel really, <laughs> yeah. really bad. But
1: yeah.
0: uh So I actually found out about the prosopagnosia before I found out about the autism. And so then when I realized that that, along with all these other things that I thought were just me being weird, when I realized that that was part of autism, then that was just another thing that made me go, oh, my brain is really different. It's just wired really different. And it just cares about different things than an holistic person's brain cares about. So, what are some other challenges that you foresee in terms of the aging autistic population and things that you'd like to see?
1: There are, there are many. Uh, there, there seems to be a higher rate of autoimmune disease, mm. for example, in our population, in our community. There's lots of unemployment and mental health issues due to anxiety. We need accommodations in housing. So often people don't design a home, uh, with autism in oh, mind. Oh, well, that's, and our families, of course, our families die uh-huh. and, uh, they may have been our main caretakers and, um, the world isn't ready. It's not ready for the, the autistic community of the aged autistic community. And, uh, that's approaching fast and they need to get ready for us. And, and I, of course, I'm really keen to, um, to help that process by by sharing information about what we need as older people so
0: what would you do to design a house for an aging autistic person
1: well, we need to be listened mm-hmm. to that's one of the biggest issues that people people talk to social workers psychologists uh, they talk to everybody else except us, and it should be nothing about us without us, nothing about me mm-hmm. without me. And even young people and older people who maybe uh, don't use language, just because you don't speak it certainly does not mean you do have anything to say. It just means the communication process will need to happen differently. So it might be through technology, through something like typing, pro-loquo-to-go, proloquo for text, there's all sorts of means to be able to share that aren't always spoken, and that that needs to happen.
0: Do you feel like autistics need private spaces more than most people do?
1: Absolutely, we sure do. We sure do. We need private spaces. We need spaces where we can stim and Mm -hmm. feel comfortable. We need spaces to to unwind and calm down, as anybody would, but we get wound up more quickly, so things can get to us and wear us down faster. We have brains that work with single-focused attention. We're not so good at multitasking, unless, of course, we're interested, (laughs) then we can, but that's a a default setting. Mm -hmm. It's not a choice. I've heard people say, oh, he, she, they can do it if they're interested implying we're just being lazy but actually interest switches the autistic brain on that's quite a different thing but it also means we're we're exhausted very mm-hmm. quickly
0: so if we were designing i i worked for 30 years doing architectural design so this is a a topic this is a special interest so we <laughs> so we might linger here for a minute or two so I think knowing what I know now, because when I was designing homes, and I really did prefer designing homes, I liked those kind of cozy domestic spaces. But I think if I was designing for an older autistic community, I'd put an emphasis on private, quiet spaces with natural light and good soundproofing, maybe a really good ventilation system being more mindful of odors in terms of cleansers yep. and things that were used. Can you think of anything else that you would have in your dream? Yes,
1: because people do that. They they use air fresheners, and geez, <laughs> that can be an overwhelming thing. When when we're going into a motel, for example, we we we, we do hunt the the smelling before we can settle down because. You have to unplug those. They're all for, absolutely. Things that other people take to mean an enhancement might be actually taking life from us rather than enhancing because uh, of things like our sensory systems working differently. Yeah. Fluorescent lights you mentioned earlier. They're a nightmare. (laughs) Yes. Hmm. They're also a trigger for epilepsy. Yeah. You know, a lot of us live with epilepsy.
0: Yeah. And I spent years avoiding them and feeling weird, like I was imagining it all in my head. And then I found, okay, it can trigger epilepsy and some migraines. But again, it wasn't until I discovered that it's part of being autistic is that you can be sensitive to fluorescent lights. And it's all these yep. things are si- simultaneously you know a huge relief and joyful and also incredibly sad i feel like the more years that we've lived trying to find accommodations for ourselves and not being able to say why i i feel like that's a, a particular challenge
1: yeah, yeah yeah the love for natural light and and being able to look out through a window and off into the distance for example uh, uh, I I would feel really caged in if if I couldn't do that.
0: So another topic that I've heard you talk about is object permanence. And I had an understanding of object permanence from taking child development classes because I'm – uber analytical and worry too much of course you know the first thing i did when i thought maybe i was going to have children is take a year's worth of child development classes (laughs) and i'm so glad that i did oh my gosh i highly recommend that out to any prospective parents out there Take a bunch of child development classes. It's the best thing you'll ever do. So what we learned in the child development classes, object permanence, is that at a certain point, for a long time, you can do the sort of hocus pocus magic tricks with kids, where if they don't see something, it ceases to exist. And so we can hide Mm. the candy behind us and pull out our hand and it's empty. And oh my gosh, the candy's completely disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah. But you were talking about your granddaughter, I think it was, and realizing that she should have developed more object permanence than she had by a certain point. And then, and I'm totally speaking for you, and I apologize, but (laughs) I'm paraphrasing here, people. So you were talking about how if you would go on a trip, it was like they didn't exist anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this resonated Mm -hmm. so deeply with me, because I am perfectly aware that if I put a blanket over the hamper, that the hamper is still under there. Yeah. But the fear and the loss I felt from being separated from people or my pets or anything, overwhelming.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's very, very common really? amongst the autistic population. It's not something people have been spoke, speaking about well enough.
0: Well, it makes me feel dumb. <laughs> I think it's, it's embarrassing. It's yeah. embarrassing. You, no, you know what no, I mean? No. I mean, it, <laughs> like, I, I'm fine with, okay, I don't remember faces, all right, whatever. But for some reason, this this part of it makes me feel like, okay, I should have this figured out by now. Would have.
1: Him- yeah, it, it's a case of <laughs> I accept that that this is gonna this is a yeah. difficult thing, and I employ a number of strategies to okay, so do, do So with well, with the grandkids, for example, when mum was not in view, my granddaughter was convinced she mum has terminally gone for the rest of her life forever. So walkie talkies to check, so mum could be in the bedroom up the stairs, but the walkie talkie. Would still let my granddaughter know mum was around and, and we did that in each room of the house. So after a while, you don't need the walkie talkies, it becomes an established object permanence event. Mm-hmm. But finding ways to build that. So I had photographs in my wallet when I didn't know if my wife was still around when I was not in Australia. I could look uh-huh. at her picture and be reminded there is a number of things we can do. And didn't always change the way I felt, but Academically, cognitively, I knew she's still there. You can't see her, but she's still there. And then, of course, we've got Skype and mobile phones and yes. other ways to, to build connections these days we never used yes. to have in the past. But um, it's so important. Usually, object permanence is established in a kid's life way before they're 18 months of age. But I'm finding that in adults on the spectrum, there's still a lack of object permanence.
0: So is it's, that uh, why it's
1: really scary? Is that
0: why when I can't find the scissors I freak out?
1: <laughs> well, it it
0: <laughs> might be. I mean, it
1: might be. I it, we're talking more about the things like people, uh, emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, people sometimes attribute this to a lack of empathy. No, no, no. This is not a lack of empathy. This is a lack of, a lack of connection. That's a completely different thing. So when that, when that connection is interrupted, uh, there is no sense of feeling that it was ever there almost. And as autistic people, if we're not connected, it it immobilizes us. So finding a way to establish that connection and maintain it is really important.
0: Wow. So. Sorry, processing here. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I've moved like 37 times in my life. And I remember lying awake at night and imagining in my head all the previous bedrooms that I had had. And I could not fall asleep Uh until I had remembered every single bedroom. And so then every time I moved, it added a new bedroom onto this kind of chain of bedrooms. Is that Uh an object permanence kind of exercise that I was doing? Or is that something else that you think?
1: I think it's probably a mix because object permanence is one thing. And you're needing to do that to save those images, to recall them, to reassure yourself you were part of that, they existed. That would be an object an object mm-hmm. permanence theme. But there's also this slightly slight disposition to go over and over something mm. to to make it real, to keep a sense of reality. We have problems predicting. <laughs> yes. You know, when kids line up their blocks one in front of the other, as we get older we make lists. Um as we get even even older <laughs> we lose those lists we find other ways to create an essence of continuity, but we're not good at forward thinking because our brains are wired to do one thing at a time. So we're taken up with the now. So you were also doing, I would suggest, as a way of trying to build a sense of certainty. I see. So there's an mix of I things I see, there. okay.
0: So it's a combination of trying to establish a pattern that I can understand and feeling yeah. familiar with myself and reassured, and also the, yep. okay, these places still exist. So
1: Yes, that was real. You didn't right. imagine it. Um, and it's going to be okay if you move yes. again. Eventually, it'll be okay if you move again and you don't yeah. remember. But that's hard. Well,
0: at a certain point, yeah, it, they dropped off, you know. And I, I certainly stopped mm, doing mm. it as an adult. And then finally, I got to live in one house for 12 years. And then, then that stopped. And I was able to just go, okay, this is where yeah, I live. This yeah, is fine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a growing up thing and establishing, you know, you know yourself thing. Et so,
0: are there things that you feel like are easier as we age? Uh, you did mention that, that there doesn't seem to be as much Alzheimer's and things like that, and that we can say no to yep. more activities. But is there anything else that you feel like is, no. that you wake up and go, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad?
1: Yeah, there's so many things that I'm, I'm less anxious really? about. I tell you, one of the biggest things to learn is how to say, oh, well. <laughs> you know, if you spill the milk, oh well if you forget something oh well if you let somebody down uh, uh, there's a whole stream of things that happen in Mm -hmm. everyday life that cause incredible anxiety but learning to say oh well so so two things there you're accepting self with all your flaws you know warts and all you're accepting that life doesn't always work the way you want it to and you're actually decreasing anxiety by learning that simple phrase. So I've I found that very helpful. But that's taken time.
0: And how old were you when you discovered that nugget there?
1: I, I would have been in my mid-40s, for sure.
0: Oh, well, that's pretty precocious, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty good. That's not bad. Okay. That's not bad. I think I, I was 50 by the time I was like, oh, you know, the, really not caring yeah, yeah. about what people thought, yep. about what I was wearing yep. or things yep. like that. A- and I've talked to other people who found that break at 50. At some point you just go, oh, wait, I am the grown-up now. You yes. Can't, <laughs> you can't, you You've
1: got you know, personal autonomy. You take charge of your life. You will not yeah. be dictated yeah. to by the, the words of others. And that's a hard thing because the, the world – seems to be governed by, it's built on that premise of what others think about you, and really the only important thing is what you think about you, which shouldn't be dictated to by how others think about mm-hmm. you. That, that takes a lot of growing up to get to that place, I reckon.
0: Yeah. I think something that helped me was to realize that I'm just not that important. People really aren't thinking about me that much. <laughs> <laughs> They've got. Yeah. Another...
1: But when you look at social yes. media, you look at all that stuff that's that out there because of modern day technology. It's all based on the glossy, um, how you know, the body image and, and how people look, and I mean even the glossy magazines for eight year olds. Mm that are that are airbrushed. That they're not reality and people don't don't do um connections to things that are uncomfortable. We don't talk about death. We don't see death in our everyday culture. We don't well we do from terrible tragedy terrible things, but I'm talking about having a pet that dies and and burying them in the garden and and getting used to comings and goings that are part Mm -hmm. of life. It's not something that we Propagate. Well,
0: we we can't even talk uh, it, about it, it, we can't even talk be. about menstruation in public. And frankly, you know, <laughs> this is something that half yeah, the we, population does right. every month for a week. Absolutely, And
1: Absolutely.
0: We can't even just carry a tampon around without feeling embarrassed or ashamed or something. So, yeah, that's, that's not yeah, that's a little that's, peculiar. That's, we're
1: humans. This is human nature. Just, we yeah. got
0: these bodies, yeah. and this is what they do. So
1: and faceless and oh getting rid gosh. of wrinkles you know i have a 90 a 96 year old aunt and she said to me last year she bought this anti-wrinkle cream oh no. and it was guaranteed it was guaranteed <laughs> and she said it, and it didn't work she said and i said <laughs> i said auntie jane nobody really expects a person of 96 to think about getting rid of wrinkles well she said well it's it's misinformation it's mis- oh
0: wrong
1: advertising oh well, i
0: don't blame <laughs> she made us laugh she
1: did make us laugh
0: <laughs> i'm sorry auntie joan you deserve better <laughs>
1: yeah well, i mean why do we want to get rid of wrinkles
0: well, i <laughs> i don't know and
1: how about aging gracefully and accepting this is part of life and it yes. should be celebrated it's beautiful yes. I'm, a, I'm thrilled a bit so i'm still alive and i hope to live a lot a lot many more years yet but I mean, I know none of us knows, but um, to enjoy each day and be thankful.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So let's talk about something that I know you enjoy, which is birds. So do you have any birds? Do you have parrots? Your house is awful quiet if you do.
1: <laughs> I don't have birds in the house. Wild birds outside, we have lots. And we've had frequently a magpie family We've helped raise the babies of, and they've sat outside our window, which we feed them. We've got a couple of magpies who have have learned how to mimic things like mobile phones, the local dog barking, (laughs) Yeah, so that's lovely. And we have lorikeets, very colorful, powerful, rainbow-colored birds that I love, and lots and lots of others.
0: So do you live out in the country?
1: I live on the border of one of the largest towns in the southwest part of Victoria in Australia. It's a 20-minute walk into town, and it's four minutes to the beach.
0: Oh, that sounds lovely. I
1: can actually hear the ocean from my backyard, so that's pretty special.
0: That just sounds beautiful.
1: It is. I know. I'm very privileged. Did
0: you grow up in that area?
1: I didn't. I, I we've only lived here seventeen years or so. So before that, we lived in Melbourne, in a city, in a suburb of a city, and it, it was too busy for me. I found it a bit overwhelming. But I think we were there for about fifteen years. The kids are still that direction, but we're still only um, well, the kitchen call kids. I? they they're in their forties, <laughs> but um, right, <laughs> yeah but they're not too far from one another. We, we get to see each other quite a bit, which is good.
0: That's wonderful. So is there any topics that we missed that oh, you'd like God. to talk about? There's
1: probably aspects to a lot, but I think we covered most things with nothing about me without me, which should be our guiding principle for inclusion. Younger people, mm-hmm. older people on the spectrum and, and the way that people change over time, how we need to accommodate those changes, things like architecture, public transport, the medical world, hospitals, dentists. There's, mm-hmm. there's so much that we are uncovering and moving towards and gaining understanding of. It, it, it is a process. It does take time.
0: Do you feel like there is a, a renaissance of understanding happening now? As it is more changing. more yep. adults yep. are realizing that yep. they're understanding
1: autistic? Understanding is growing. There's, we're currently working on a project called The Hidden Histories of Autistic People, and that is an oral history project of exploring before diagnosis and after, and that's really, really interesting. We're also looking quite a lot into the eighth sense of interoception, which people haven't really taken note of before. What the heck is that? definitely, (laughs) definitely offline in autism. That's that sense of inner connections to things like, am I thirsty? Am I hungry? Am I, what temperature am I?
0: Heck if I know. (laughs)
1: You know, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And if those things are offline, how on earth does a person self-regulate? So we will go from zero to a hundred, you know, in the split of of a second. And people say things like, he was all right a moment ago, she was all right a moment ago. What happened? We flipped our lid without knowing anything about the process of moving to that point where it happens. Whereas Mm -hmm. the non-autistic population become aware what's happening they feel that build up and we don't notice it so we're working quite a lot in south australia where i've been working there's over a hundred schools now where the interception is part of their curriculum wow. built into their school day yeah and so, so kids have time to do interceptive exercises
0: oh my gosh this is so yeah. fascinating so what is an interceptive exercise that people could try at
1: home small things it's all small things with so millions of them but Stretching your hands and holding that stretch for 30 seconds and noting where do you feel that. Is it between your fingers? Is it in your wrist, your elbow? Then you repeat the exercise. Stretch again for 30 seconds and note again where did you feel that. What you're doing is you're building up an acquaintance of inner feeling Mm -hmm. that we've not had in the past. So, so for years I always wore a baseball cap because I didn't know where I ended. I hadn't, I didn't have an essence of my body and my hands. What was part of me? What wasn't? What was self? What was other? Exercises for interception build that sense of self. And that means we're able to regulate so much better our emotions because we can feel them coming on. Mm-hmm. So it's great for young people at school who go into what we call a meltdown quite quickly. We're noticing in South Australia, like fifty to sixty percent less exclusions are happening in schools.
0: So, Um, what's an exclusion?
1: Um, Kids that get excluded for school for bad behaviour. Oh, um, okay. For being challenging.
0: Got it. So here,
1: bad behaviour because it's actually a behaviour that's saying, "I need help."
0: Got it. So here, we would call that a suspension. Yeah,
1: suspensions, exclusions, and eventual times, you know, where you. You're, you're not allowed to go to school anymore.
0: Got it. Got it. Wow. So that well, that's phenomenal. Oh it my is gosh. phenomenal.
1: And it's decreasing more and more as kids learn to connect to self. You can look it up. Look up interoception. I will. I
0: will. That's, and you'll, you'll, yeah.
1: you'll read lots about it. But object permanence and building that connection, interoception, building connection. These are all things that help build confidence in self. And I mm-hmm. mean, give us a place where we're able to have Mm self-autonomy.
0: Well, this has been absolutely as fascinating as I knew it would be getting to talk to you. And I would (laughs) love to talk to you again anytime you have a subject that you'd like to express to all my listeners. Do you have any talks coming up or books coming out that you'd like to let people know about?
1: Yeah, I'm currently working on Chapters in various books for things like gender identity, girls on the spectrum, also interoception and object permanence. So those are things I'm writing about. In May, I'll be going to Europe on a sort of a seven-week lecture tour. I'd love to come to the States, especially Portland and Oregon. I have some friends there that I meet online. Love to see them in the flesh. That would be cool. Oh, well,
0: we would love to have you here. and We
1: can do that. Yay!
0: So what would you like to say to my listeners and your listeners?
1: Um, golly, uh, thank you for listening. I really hope that some of the essence of, of this discussion finds a home in, in your hearts as well as your minds. I have a webpage and an email address. You can always contact me for further questions and discussion.
0: And what's your webpage called?
1: Webpage is simply www.wen, which is W E N N, Lawson, L A W S O N.com.
0: And there will be a link to that on the webpage for the podcast.
1: Okay, cool.
0: Well, Dr. Wen, thank you so much. and
1: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Rachel.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for being actually autistic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Terrific. Cool. Way to go.